Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. I want to invite you to support a very special Kickstarter, 1982, Greatest Geek Year Ever, from producers Mark A. Altman, Roger Lay, and Thomas Vitale. 1982, Greatest Geek Year Ever. You're probably asking why. Well, I got Darren Doctorman here with me to tell us about some of the great films. Now, I want you to guess some of the films that came out that year. I'm going to give you a, give you a hint. Still, old friend. Uh, Tron. No. God, <laughs> that was one of the films. Oh. That's not the one I'm talking about. Okay. You managed to kill just about everyone else. But like a poor marksman, you keep on missing the target. Uh, Conan the Barbarian. No, that also came out that same year. Oh, God, you've never listened to me before, Crom. <laughs> okay. Okay. You're making this really, really difficult. I don't have any quotes from Time Rider, the uh, adventures of Lyle Swan. What about this? Um, you're not a replicant. Oh. Hmm. I came across a turtle on a road. You turned it over. Okay. Uh, that's the thing. No, it's Blade <laughs> Runner. Gosh, oh, that also right. came out in 92. But the thing did come out in 1982. And as we all learned, man is the warmest place to hide. <laughs> okay. Have you ever wondered what it's like to put out fire with gasoline? I have not. Do you know what movie that's from? The great David Bowie sang the song. Oh, it's... Uh... I have no idea. Cat people. Oh, cat people. Right. Cat people. Paul Schrader's remake of cat people. 1982. Nastasia Kinski. Exactly. And, and, and John Hurd and Malcolm McDowell, who fans of this podcast may know, played Sauron. Sauron. You mean Soren. Yeah, that's who I mean. <laughs> he played Sauron, the Lord okay, of the Rings. Okay, <laughs> you, you, you know. Okay, let me, let, me, let me try a few more because you're not doing very good at this. Okay, this house has many hearts. Oh, that's uh, that has to be Star Trek too. No, that's <laughs> Poltergeist. God, I know you were a Trexpert. Well, There's I no am. Line like that in Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. I I'm pretty sure there is. It's it's when the it's when Savick comes out of the uh, turbo lift and says, "This house is clean." Okay, I got I got one last one because I don't I don't have anything from I don't have anything from. The Atomic Cafe or, or Missing. Oh, or, I have or, something from the Atomic Cafe. Duck yeah. and Cover. Duck and Cover. That's true. Very good. That also came in 1982. And I'm going to give you one last one last thing. Okay. Okay. Silver Shamrock. Silver Shamrock. Oh, uh, E.T., the extraterrestrial. Oh, it's Halloween 3, <laughs> Season of the Witch. Oh my God, Gertie could do better at this than you can. This is no, terrible. I, this is Mark. I'm, I'm is... pulling your leg. I, I knew all of these. I just wanted to have a little bit of fun because all of these movies came out in 1982, the greatest geek year ever. Indeed, they did. And if you want to learn all that is knowable in 1982 and have a great time doing it, check out our documentary on Kickstarter starting June 4th, the anniversary of Star Trek II and Poltergeist release through the end of June and support this Kickstarter. I hope you'll join me in making this really special documentary. I fell in love with the movies in 1982. I want to celebrate it. And I hope you'll help us do that by supporting 1982 Greatest Geek Year Ever with an exclusive logo from Mike Akuda. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts, and we're now the hosts of Inglorious Trexperts Briefing Room. 
curated audio commentaries of significant Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way through Discovery. So if you want to check out exciting, incisive audio commentaries with the writers, producers, stars, and Trexperts, you want to listen to Trexperts Briefing Room wherever you get your podcasts. That's Trexperts Briefing Room. That's a separate feed from Inglorious Trexperts. And you can listen to curated audio commentaries with great commentary of some of your favorite and possibly least favorite Star Trek episodes of all time. You don't want to miss this, kids. Give these episodes another ear. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me as always is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How you doing today, Josh? Oh, jinx. We're both doing good, I guess. (laughs) Um, We're very excited to have back on our podcast returning champion guest, Mr. Adam Rifkin. (laughs) That's me. Um, uh, if you have not listened to our previous episode with Adam, uh, which I think was like the second episode we ever recorded. I don't remember what era order we uh, aired them in, um, but it was definitely the second one we ever did. Listen to it recently. Uh, it still holds up. A lot of good information in there, but that was also at a time when we were trying to keep the podcasts shorter. So we knew at the time that there was a lot of things we were leaving off the table that we could have talked about, including talking a little more in depth about uh, things like He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, which we will get to later in the show. Um, But we just plan kind of want to go through Adam's whole unmade career, as it were, (laughs) Um, which unfortunately, well, fortunately for us, there is a lot of really cool stuff. Um, But one thing I do want to get to, we, you know, in the previous episode, we talked a little bit about your origin story, but that's another example where I felt like we didn't have time to go as in depth as I would like. Sure. And one story that I'm sure you at this point have told so many times, you can just flip a switch and let it roll. Um, but for those who don't know it, I would love for you to tell your John Hughes uh, story. Sure. I'd love to, no problem. So um, I'm from Chicago. By the way, first of all, before I say anything else, happy to be back. Thank you so much for asking me back. I had a great time the first time and I'm very happy to uh, return. Well, I guess I should also say first things first. I would like everyone to go back and listen to that episode, but I'm sure some people won't. Uh, And for those who don't listen to that one and maybe are not familiar with Rifkin's name, just hearing it, uh, he is a writer and a writer-director. He's written movies such as Small Soldiers and Mouse Hunt, the and Underdog the movies. <laughs> oh, yeah, directed The Dark Backwards, yes. um, Detroit Rock City, The Last Movie Star, Burt Reynolds' final film. Um, but anyway, sorry, you were saying. Uh... <laughs> um, so I'm from Chicago. Um, from as early an age as I can remember, all I ever wanted to do was make movies. I loved movies. Uh, and I was making movies from a very young age with my friends, with my dad's Sears Super 8 movie camera, you know, pre, you know, pre-digital. Uh, How are you filmmaking. editing those? I had a little, a little hand-wind, uh, you know, movieola that I would 
I would cut the film and I'd tape it together. They had little tape and little, you could get glue too to glue it together. Very analog. Um, but I really kind of taught myself by doing it, the principles of filmmaking. I didn't realize that was what was occurring. I, I just did it for fun because I loved it so much. And I always figured that when I was old enough, I'd move to Hollywood and would learn how to do it properly, learn the real way when I got here. Uh, but I made so many little movies with my friends and just by trial and error, I kind of taught myself the basics. So what I used to do before I understood what editing was, I had a friend named Greg Anderson, who's still a friend. And we would make movies where he'd, he'd end up playing all the roles because all my other friends got tired of, you know, me bossing them around in these little <laughs> movies that they saw no point to. So he would end up playing multiple roles. So, I would shoot, like, for example, we'd made this one movie called the, um, the, uh, we made a movie called, I think it was called uh, The Burglar from Out of the Dishwasher. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, he'd be sitting at the kitchen table eating cereal, and then he'd hear a knock at the door. He'd look to the door. And then he'd change his clothes. I'd stop the camera. He'd change his clothes. He'd go outside. I would <laughs> film the door. I'd resume filming. In-camera editing, as it was called, he would then open the door and say, it's me. I'd stop the camera. He'd change back to his other clothes again, go back to the kitchen table, put the spoon down and say, oh, come on in. I mean, we did the entire movie this way, uh, multiple movies. Then I made, we made a movie called Murder Can Kill You, where... <laughs> Great title learned then coming out of the gate hot. <laughs> I I learned I figured out that you could shoot all of one side of the conversation at one time, and then you could shoot all of the other side of the conversation at another time, and you could edit it together later. And I <laughs> I I I, uh, I I I with with the I, I it was it was obvious. But to me, it was quite a discovery. So that changed everything for me. I was suddenly, a, you know, I was suddenly Eisenstein, uh, you know, in my backyard. But um, I, I went to high school in Chicago at a high school called the Chicago Academy of the Arts uh, because I knew I wanted to study film. And and that was sort of the, the Chicago version of a, of, a, of, a, of a fame school. And um, there were theater majors and dance majors and art majors and music majors. And I sort of was their only film major. And I made films as my school projects, but word came to the school that they were making a movie in Chicago called 16 Candles. And anybody from our school and other schools too, but they definitely reached out to our school because we were the arts academy. Uh, if we wanted to be in 16 Candles, we could. And I thought to myself, this is a great opportunity to be on a real movie set and to see how real movies were made. So I signed up immediately. And so they said they want us to dress to show up dressed like either a tough kid or a nerd. And so I got really into dressing up in my toughest tough kid ensemble. And when I showed up, the director, John Hughes, personally picked me to be head nerd. <laughs> Um, and that was, uh, that was my first experience on a movie set, but I did get to be, you see me in the movie a lot. They gave me these new wave glasses that are just like a strip of red across my eyes. 
So if you see the movie, you can see me all over the movie uh, in the first like half of the movie. And after I was done working um, as an extra, uh, I went up to John Hughes, who was very nice to everybody, which I always remembered. And um, that influenced me greatly. And I said to him that I wanted to be a filmmaker just like him someday. And could I come back now that I'm done working as an extra and just shadow him and learn by watching him? And he said, yes, come back anytime I want. And I took him at his word and I came back every day and I just shadowed him and watched the movie get shot. And I learned so much. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, it was a great experience. I mean, that's better than any film school. It was, it was much better than any film school. I learned so much on that, on that uh, set. Well, that really leads to uh, another thing you noted in our previous episode uh, that we didn't follow up on is you said you moved to LA at 17. Uh, yes. What is that even, you know, that almost sounds like old timey, you know, at 15, <laughs> I packed up and headed out West. Well, um, it's not quite as romantic as that. <laughs> I did get accepted into USC. So I used going to school as my catalyst. And but you just to, graduated before you were 18 from your high school. I, I left school. I left high school a year early. I, because my high school was very bohemian. I convinced my, uh, uh, I convinced my um, principal that if he lets me graduate a year early, I'll get out to Hollywood and I'll spread the word about the school and I'll get as successful as possible, as early as possible, which will be a great promotion for the school because the school was a new school at that time. I, and I, I talked, you know, up a storm about how uh, the quicker somebody can graduate from this school and become successful in their chosen field, the better um, of an advertisement it is for the school. And he bought it. <laughs> and so he let me graduate a year early. So, so you, already as a kid, you, you were talking your way into a lot of good stuff. <laughs> It's not a business for shy people. Yeah. <laughs> you got to kind of be willing to put yourself out there. Um, yeah. And then as far as things we already covered, uh, you only stayed at USC briefly, right? Um, yes. I only stayed for about a year and a half. Um, and I, I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm all for film school. Anybody who wants to go to film school, you know, more power to them. Uh, but I felt, I don't know, you know, would I give this advice to somebody? I don't know. For me, I felt like I had learned a lot of the things that they were starting. They were just starting to teach people by making all the films I'd been making since I was a little kid, you know, basics like, um, um, master shot, single, single over the shoulders. I mean, those are the kinds of things that, that were just starting to be talked about at, at the film school. And I felt like I had figured that out when I was 10 you and I really had just kind of major want... editing breakthrough. <laughs> That's right. So I just wanted to get out there and just try pounding the pavement. Um, and so I quit, but when I was there, I will say when I was at USC, a lot of people who were also there at the same time have gone on to become very successful. <laughs> um, my teacher's assistant who was a, a student there at the time was uh, Jay Roach uh, who's extremely successful mm -hmm. filmmaker, director, producer, um, Larry Karaszewski and, um, and, uh, his writing partner, Scott, uh, they were there. And, um, Michael Lehman was there. Who's a big director. Oh, yeah. And, uh, John Singleton was there. Who's a big director, the late, great John Singleton. 
uh, a lot of very uh, cool and very successful people were there at the time, which was <laughs> neat to see them all succeed. I'm sure. Wow. Uh, and we covered last time uh, the fun story of your first movie, Never on Tuesday. Right. Uh, obviously, we covered uh, your first big unmade movie, Return to the Planet of the Apes. Um, and how that, yes. even though it didn't mm -hmm. happen, ultimately, though, was a good thing because it got you in the Writers Guild and it kind of announced you to the town. Yes, it was a great uh it was a great experience, great opportunity. It opened a lot of doors for me. And it was my first big heartbreak, my yeah. first big life lesson at the same time. What you need. It's a yeah. It's yeah. Important. You got to get a, you have to have a thick skin yeah, in this wacky biz. Sadly, mm. an important part of the industry. Well, so, yeah. So now like, uh, I was going to say like a year ago or a few years ago, like, there's a clip from Never on Tuesday of Nicolas Cage that started making the rounds again. You oh, know, yeah, his cameo. Itself. Yes, yeah. that's true. Which is well, kind of cool. Here's, here's what's funny. I have never in all the years of the existence of the internet, I have never had anything that I've been a part of go viral. You know, every time you promote a movie, you try to make things go viral. You hope things are going to go viral. You try and get the word out as much as possible in hopes that, you know, one of the clips or the trailer or something you know catches fire never has happened um but about a year ago roughly um suddenly i start getting all these um messages about never on tuesday and i'm like what the hell how does anybody know that that movie exists somebody had taken the there's nicholas cage does a one minute cameo in that movie we shot it in 86 or 87. Um, and it's a very bizarre one minute. He's, he, he, we had several um, cameos in the movie because the producers knew the Brat Pack. So they got all their buddies in the Brat Pack to agree to be in this movie. So Charlie Sheen was in the movie. Judd Nelson was in the movie. Emilio Estevez in the movie. Carrie Elwes is in the movie. Um, did I say Judd Nelson? Judd Nelson's in the movie. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, and Nicolas Cage had agreed to be in it too as a cameo. He didn't know um, Brad and Cassie and the two producers, but they had a, a script that I'd be very curious to find out where it is. I don't remember who wrote it, but they had a script they were trying to get made that a lot of young actors wanted to be in called Mr. Smith Goes to Hell. <laughs> and that script had a lot of buzz around it at the time. And so Nicolas Cage wanted to star in Mr. Smith Goes to Hell. So he agreed to be to do a cameo in this movie because he wanted to to be in their other film. So but basically he was he agreed to do it if he could do whatever he wanted. And uh, we said, OK, so he said, I want to wear a big fake nose and I want to drive a, uh, a I forget what kind of car it was, a, a, a Testarossa, some some very expensive car. And they said, OK. The producer said, okay, so he showed up and he did this crazy character, this one minute thing. There was more to it than ultimately made the cut because um, the distributor thought it was too weird. I wish that <laughs> footage could be, could be uh, uncovered because I know the stuff that got cut out is even funnier. But that one minute, somebody a year ago found a VHS of the movie, Never on Tuesday, took the one minute of Nicolas Cage, put it on the internet and basically said, there's a movie that was made in the 1980s 
called Never on Tuesday. And this is the entirety of Nicolas Cage's role. <laughs> it went viral in as viral a way as anything you could imagine going viral. I mean, millions of people were retweeting it and commenting on it. And, and suddenly me and the producers were getting calls from the New York Times, <laughs> the LA Times, Time Magazine, Entertainment Weekly, every big news outlet wanted to know what's the story behind this clip. <laughs> and of course, as well, and, and Nick, uh, Nicholas Cage uh, was delighted. You know, he he made he did an interview and made, you know, very, um, you know, complimentary comments about the experience <laughs> and remembering the character he created and everything. Anyway, um, we got offers from some uh, uh, companies that do special edition Blu-ray releases, wanting us to uh, do a, a special, you know, to do a 4K scan and re-release re the movie and because it hadn't been seen since the 80s on VHS. And um, the rights are all tangled in some sort of uh, cluster that, that, that the producers couldn't figure out how to detangle. So sadly, yeah. the wave <laughs> came and went. And now the, <laughs> the excitement of, uh, of rediscovering uh, the movie has since passed. But that was a fun little moment, the, the, the viral clip. Oh, it was awesome seeing that footage. Because I... <laughs> Yeah, it cracked me up because the first time I saw him act crazy was in a movie called Deadfall. Sure. Yeah, but I didn't realize before that or f before Vampire's Kiss, he was already on that tip. I only knew him from like Moonstruck and, and like Birdie. Well, he was definitely he was definitely down with the crazy from as early on as as uh, it's you like can Peggy imagine. Sue got married, right? He's like, I want to talk like this for the <laughs> whole movie. <laughs> Well, listen, yeah. he's a national treasure as far as oh, I'm yeah. concerned. He, he's oh, a yeah. he's an artist and a brilliant actor and a, and he's so funny. And so, I mean, I just think he's the best. So. Oh, yeah. Um, well, so back on track. Uh, Apes finished. Um, and how do we get to Bloodbath a go-go? Does Dark Backwards happen in between there? Well, here's what happened. Um, when I was uh, first starting out, I thought it would be funny. This is the reason that a lot of people do things when they're young. They just think it would be funny. I thought it would be funny to have a dual career where I would pursue directing legitimate cinematic endeavors as myself, as Adam Rifkin. And I would at the same time have an alter ego that I would keep completely separate. I wouldn't let people know it was me. That, who would direct Grindhouse movies because I love exploitation movies. And that director would be named Riff Coogan. And Riff Coogan would make all these, you know, wild exploitation films. Where did that name come from? Well, Riff was my nickname as a kid because my last name is Rifkin. And Coogan is from um, the great Clint Eastwood movie, Coogan's Bluff. <laughs> so uh, that's how I came up with the name. But so... After I had made Never on Tuesday, I was a big fan of uh, the director, John Landis, because I love Animal House, Blues Brothers, American Werewolf in London, Kentucky Fried Movie. I mean, so many great movies. I mean, not to mention uh, Trading Places and Coming to America and Three Amigos. And I mean, there's just so many, the thriller video, whatever. So 
when I made Never on Tuesday, I reached out to him. And I said, I made my first movie and you're a big inspiration. And would you ever consider watching? And he invited me to Universal where he had an office and he screened the movie for me. I brought the cans, the 35 millimeter cans with me. And uh, he screened the movie, took me to lunch and was very generous with his time. And he became a real mentor to me. And not long after that, um, and, and, and subsequently he would read my scripts and he would give me, um, he would help me whenever he could. He was just very, very, another big director who, you know, being so generous and friendly, it stuck with me, like with John Hughes, you know? So um, he told me once, the thing about making movies is you very rarely get a chance to practice because movies are so expensive to make. So anytime you have a chance to make a movie, you're just thrown in to this opportunity and all this money is at stake and the, and the stakes are so high. So that's also part of why I came up with the Riff Coogan idea because I thought I could make these exploitation moves on the side for a very, you know, for tiny budgets, the, the, um, the stakes are low and it would be great experience, you know? So um, the, uh, the very first opportunity that came about to direct a Riff Coogan movie uh, came from a, a company called Vista Street, which did a lot of exploitation movies at the time, really tiny little movies. And I had sold them on this idea that I would make a movie for them under the Riff Coogan persona. And it would be my homage to Russ Meyer. <laughs> you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be called Bloodbath A Go-Go. And it was going to be all set in a strip club. And it was going to be basically, you know, one by one, the strippers are getting killed off by a mysterious killer. And who is the killer? Um, but along the way, stripping, you know, <laughs> so the exploitation uh, uh, edict is organically um, made good upon. So um, I wrote the script in a couple of days. I mean, in a weekend. And they were going to fund the movie, and we had a, a, a success. We had casting sessions, where um, and you know the 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 uh, we usually tape casting, and I think I still have the tape of the casting sessions from Bloodbath to Go Go somewhere. Uh, and we saw tons of tons of people for the for the. There's one person, I I I I will tell you that that one of the women who auditioned for Bloodbath to Go Go went on to be um, famous for being Larry King's wife. I forget her name, but she, Rhonda she, she uh, no, not Rhonda Shear. She, she, she was his wife for years and years until recently when he just recently passed. Hmm. Um, anyway. So why it didn't happen is the, the guy who owned Vista street had agreed to um, give me a percentage of the gross. Uh, and at a certain point, right in, we, were, we had the strip club picked out and we were getting ready. We had uh, all the cast, the casting was done and we were ready to go. And then he, in the, in the contract, put that it was net instead of gross. And I said, you said gross and you now put in here, it says net. He said, no, I said net. I said, I think you said gross. I remember <laughs> the difference. And we got into an argument and the movie blew up. I subsequently then went on to make... Um, a different Riff Coogan movie as my first Riff Coogan movie, which was called The Invisible Maniac, which was, uh, which, so what happened was the dark backward got greenlit. Um, 
And that was a movie that was very important to me that I do a good job and I really wanted it to turn out well. And so, but there was a little time before we would start prep. And that's when I said to one of the other producers, Cassie and Elvis, I said, let's do a little low budget horror movie right away and I'll get some, you know, some practice time in and, and we can make a couple bucks in the meantime. So that's how the invisible maniac came about. And, uh, Oh man, I loved that movie and, in high school. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. And that's that. Speaking of speaking of a a Blu-ray, you know, 4K scam uh, special edition Blu-ray release that is occurring right oh, now. Oh no for, way! For for the Invisible Man, I can't say who or when yet, but a, an announcement will be coming soon. Uh, yeah, because it came out such a, during such a great time of those types of films, because like I used to before I went to sleep every night, I'd slip in a, uh, a VHS tape on the six hour speed and I would tape Cinemax all night long. And then when I would come home from school, I just press play and I just see what I caught from the night before. And I always catch yeah. some like cool shit like, you know, Prom Night 3 or Highway to Hell or Pace, Peacemaker. <laughs> and then one day Visible Maniac popped up and I was like, what is this? And it was it was so awesome at the time. Thank you. Well, I'll tell you a couple, a couple just quick tidbits. So, um, so the Invisible Maniac, I, after I made Detroit Rock City, a couple years later, I met um, Johnny Ramone, and he thanked me for using Ramone songs in Detroit Rock City, right? And I thanked him for you know being in Rock and Roll High School because I said Rock and Roll High School was a huge inspiration on Detroit Rock City. And then we got to talking and Johnny Ramone uh, was a, a, a big fan of B movies. And when he found out that I directed the invisible maniac and when, and that I had, and that I was Riff Coogan, Johnny Ramone geeked out on me, That's which awesome. was a pretty cool. <laughs> That's moment. So cool. That was fun. That was fun. Oh, I will tell you this too. And this is something that people just might not even consider. So at that, at that time, direct to, um, video movies, the, the, the marketplace was huge. You know, if you could make a movie that was in color, had exploitable elements, meaning boobs or blood, and was relatively competently uh, uh, made, <laughs> you could make a, a lot of money with it. I mean, that's why so many bad movies from that era exist, because every was starting these little video companies and making these crappy little movies and making a fortune. So the Invisible Maniac, this doesn't exist at all, of course, but the Invisible Maniac was like made for 150 grand and it sold to Republic Pictures at that time for 750 grand, the rights. And they put a huge, they had huge cardboard display of the Invisible Maniac in lobbies of video stores across the country. I mean, big like like you'd see for a, a summer blockbuster in a movie theater lobby. They did that for the Invisible Maniac. Get one of those in the yourself? late eighties. Oh, nice! It was Fantastic. it was wild, wild time. <laughs> I have one. I have you one. Get a yes. it's, it's, oh, it's, man, it's it's faded like now, but I, it still exists. I have. I, I may have the only one in existence. Those. Oh my god, that's so awesome. Well, I will tell you this. Occasionally, because because. Like I said, the stakes were low and the people who were involved in making them, they just saw them as product. They didn't care what they were as long as they were done on or under budget and delivered on time so they could fulfill their pipeline. So they, they didn't give a crap what you, what you did. So that freedom was truly liberating and, and, and you could be very creative, you know, 
Um, and at the same time, a lot of people who were, you know, for a, for a hungry filmmaker, it was great. But for a lot of the people who were cranking out those movies, you know, I feel I, I feel personally offended. They call themselves directors because they didn't give a shit what they were making. They were just trying to turn a quick buck. And so that's why so many of them are so unwatchable. But occasionally oh, you come upon, you know, around uh, the some that are just night, gems, you, you know, know they which would is play great. All those types of films, you oh, know, man. every Saturday, Friday night. So I uh. loved up all night. Exactly. Well, her her show, her show would play uh, Invisible Maniac a lot. And my other Riff Coogan movie, the uh, which was called Psycho Cop Returns, she played that a lot, too. What was the difference between her and Gilbert Godfrey's versions of Up All Night? Did Same one movies. just replace the other or? I think Gilbert had Friday night and she had uh, Saturday night. I was going to say, I felt like they were on at the same time. Yeah, they had alternating nights between Friday and Saturday. I could I could be wrong which had Friday and which had Saturday, but that's what I remember. Because I know of Saturday nights was Joe Bob Briggs on the movie channel, and I think it was Gilbert or Rhonda on USA, because if Joe Bob Briggs didn't like the movie he was playing, he'd literally tell the audience to turn to USA. <laughs> <laughs> I used to love that, you know? Uh, well, moving along, how do we get to rock stars don't take finals? So... Um... After I had made Never on Tuesday, but before I made um, The Invisible Maniac or The Dark Backward, um, me and, and some friends were at, at the time there was a, an annual um, Big Brothers of America dinner that used to occur in Beverly Hills every year. And uh, it was a star-studded event every year. And... Um, big comedians and big celebrities would be there. It was, it was to raise money for Big Brothers of America. And it was hosted by Carl Reiner. And um, speaking of Gilbert Gottfried, he was one of the young comedians that night. And a lot of, um, you know, Jack Lemmon was there. And, and uh, a lot of the big stars of the, of the moment, who I, I can't remember the big stars of the moment who were there, but everybody was there. And um, one of the comedians also was Sam Kinison. So Sam Kinison was hilarious. And one thing led to another, and I don't know how, but my, one of the friends I was there with is named Steve Bing, who would go on to become a very prolific producer. Steve sadly uh, died this past year. Um, but at this time, um, so one thing led to another. And I don't remember how we all got to the same club after the <laughs> Big Brothers of America dinner, but we were at the same club with Sam Kinison. And we were talking to Sam Kinison. I guess we told him that we were at the Big Brothers of America dinner as well. And he was, he was fucked up, Sam <laughs> Kinison. How old were and you at this time? I was 21, probably. Um, he was messed up, Sam Kennison. And he took a liking to me and Steve because he knew that I was a writer-director and Steve was a screenwriter. Steve, at 18, had written Missing in Action and had sold and had created that franchise as, at 18. Wow. Holy shit. So, um, <laughs> no, so, it was um, so young. Yeah. So, um, so Sam Kennison took a liking to us because he had this obsession that he wanted to star in a movie of... Um, John Wayne Gacy, where the serial killer, the clown who dressed up like a clown, and he wanted to play John Wayne Gacy. So he just 
basically kidnapped us, took us in his limo because he wanted to take us up to his house and he wanted to show us this documentary about John Wayne Gacy. So we thought it was the thing to do to roll with those punches because this could be an exciting adventure, you know. Um, and he took us up way high up into some hills way, and some house he was staying at way high up above all of L.A., but tre treacherous, windy mountain roads. I have no idea where we were. And, you know, there were no cell phones. Nobody had cell phones. And he, he took us into this crazy mansion and was doing so many drugs. I mean, he was, and it was, he, he would cut his cocaine with his American Express gold card or platinum card, whatever the big card was at that time. Um, and he would snort it with rolled up hundred dollar bills. And that was, he, that was his sort of fuck you to being poor, I guess, from his youth or something like that. And um, he, he, uh, it was very crazy, dark experience. Um, and he had all these um, sort of uh, henchmen around him and we would call a cab. You know, we wanted them to take us back to our cars and he wouldn't. He just was <laughs> holding us hostage, talking about John Wayne Gacy in a crazy, <laughs> coked out way. And um, we would call a cab and, and somebody downstairs would send, always keep sending the cabs away so we couldn't get out. And we really felt like we were being held against our will at a certain point. And then he agreed to take us back to our cars. We got back into the limo, but he was taking, little did we know, he was, the limo was not taking us to our cars, but taking us to an airfield because he was hours late for a, to get to Vegas or Ohio, or I don't remember where, to, to do some show that he, he was supposed to do. And so we, we literally escaped him on the airfield, went running from the <laughs> private plane and took a cab back to our cars. Um, so, but we thought to ourselves, well, maybe there's a way to do a movie of this somehow, a ver some version of a movie. But the, the idea of doing it with Sam Kinison as the lead character, just we, we wanted to make it more, uh, uh, give it a, a wider sort of appeal. We didn't, we felt that was very niche. So we came up with the idea that two young pre-med students were studying for their MCAT exam. This is the test that gets you into medical school. Either you get in or you don't based on this test. And they've both been studying their whole lives for this moment, for this test tomorrow morning. And they're, they take a break from cramming. They go out to get a milkshake. They got their flashcards with them. They're, they're, they're testing each other. And suddenly there's a commotion in the diner. Some guy uh, uh, comes... Um, blowing through the front doors of the diner with a bloody hand. He's got his hair in his face. He's got scarves blowing. He looks like some crazy homeless guy. And they, and, uh, and they say, Oh my God, there's somebody who's in trouble. We're, we're doc. We're going to be doctors. We should go help him. And so without giving it a second thought, they leap into action and through, you know, sort of MacGyvering, you know, what they need, you know, somebody has got a bottle of booze under the counter. Somebody has got, you know, something else to tie off the, you know, as a tourniquet, blah, 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 this and that. They fix this guy's hand. And just as they're fixing his hand, he pushes his hair back and, and, and re puts his hat on so you can see his face. And it's basically Mick Jagger. It's the biggest rock star in the world at that time. And they're blown away. And he says, you guys uh, are my heroes. You're the real heroes. You fixed me up without knowing who I was. Didn't give a crap. 
what I do. You just helped a, a fellow human in need. As, a, as my thanks to you, you got to come with me to Las Vegas and uh, be my guests at my show that I'm currently late for. And they say, God, this is so exciting, but we have to, as much as we hate to say it, we have to say no. We have to decline because <laughs> the most important test in our lives is, our t- is tomorrow morning. And we have to take that test. And he is, and, and the Mick Jagger character, whose character's name is Willie Hooker, is so charming and so fun. And he convinces them by saying, look, it's just going to be a few minutes. You know, I can get, we can get there in 30 minutes. The show is an hour. I'll have you back in two hours tops. It's only not even going to be midnight by that time. You've been studying for your whole lives. A couple hours isn't going to make any difference. What do you say? And against their better judgment, they agree to go. And once they get in that limo, it's, it's, they can't escape the whirlwind of Willie Hooker's uh, adventure, this adventure, which, you know, leads from party to concert to adventure here and there. And it just, it just doesn't stop and they can't escape. <laughs> and that was uh, how, it, what the inspiration was. Uh, the, you know, the, the Sam Kennison was the inspiration for all that. So we, and then and, and we pitched it as the ultimate temptation versus the ultimate responsibility. And so at the time, Touchstone Pictures was doing a lot of youth-oriented films for a modest budget. And having just directed my first film and him having written what he wrote for, uh, you know, Missing in Action, and I was a writer as well, we pitched the idea to Touchstone Pictures that uh, we should write and I would direct this movie. And they bought it in the room. They wow. said, deal. <laughs> so we wrote the script and it turned out great. And then one thing led to another and it didn't get made, which is the story that happens many <laughs> times over in Hollywood. But it didn't die there because then several other situations. I mean, so like when I sold Mouse Hunt to DreamWorks uh, and then I wrote Small Soldiers for DreamWorks, they said, what else do you want to do? So I told them about Rockstars don't take finals. So they bought it from Disney. So then we were going to do it at DreamWorks. And I, we did a rewrite for them at DreamWorks. And one thing led to another, and it didn't happen at DreamWorks. And then there was another company. I can't remember which company, but they made a bunch of famous movies at that time. And I told them about it. And then they bought it from DreamWorks. And then we were going to do it at, the, at this other company. Anyway, it never got made. But uh, maybe yeah. one day, maybe one day. But, but one, one of those adventures led us to New York where Steve and I had a meeting with Howard Stern at the height of his sort of superstardom to play the rock star. Um, so that was one, I mean, that, that, that movie had a lot of different lives and wow. ultimately never saw the light of day. Oh but. my goodness. Oh, Destination, I think, picked it up at one yes, point. Yes, Destination is the company that was after uh, uh, DreamWorks, yeah. Oh, wow, that would have been awesome with Howard Stern, especially like after uh, Private Parts. And... Would have been great. It was right after Private Parts, yeah. Oh, man. It's also oh, not what he was trying to make his fart man movie. Yeah. yeah. And I love those movies that just take place in one night and it's just madness. I do too. So do we. I mean, After Hours was a big influence. Into the Night was a big influence. Mm-hmm. All those movies that, I mean, The Out of Towners. I mean, it's just all those movies where everything goes wrong uh, along the way over the course of one crazed night. Ah, oh, man. Well, hopefully one day. <laughs> I'd love this. I hope so. I hope so. 
<laughs> I love that story too, because you got to hang out with Sam Kinison during Sam. his. He was that's insane. Like, but that was like his, exciting and horrifying. Yeah, because that's his rock star era too, right? With the wild thing and exactly. all that. Exactly. Exactly. He was the rock star that we pitched. You know. Wow, that was an awesome story. That was fun. <laughs> and then, how do we get to your Tales from the Crypt movie? So, when I made The Dark Backward, um, I worked with Bill Paxton, who, as we all know, sadly passed not too terribly long ago. Uh, but Bill Paxton was the best guy in the world. Just the nicest, most talented, funniest, most generous, just best guy. And um, we became very good friends and he knew what a big movie fan I was. And he was making a movie called Trespass, which at the time was called Looters when they were shooting it. And it was being directed by Walter Hill. And he knew that I was a big Walter Hill fan. So he uh, introduced me to Walter Hill. He created a, a, a lunch between the three of us. And I just, loved meeting Walter Hill. I was, you know, loved so many of his movies. We talked all about them. And so Walter was knee deep involved in all the tales from the crypt stuff at that time, the show. And then they were starting to do movies. And Walter suggested that, um, I, he and I write a tales from the crypt movie together. They were going to make three tales from the crypt movies at, Warner Brothers at that time and that he and I would write one and that I could direct it. And uh, I met with, because of that, I, I met with Joel Silver. I mean, uh, that was set up by Walter that I would meet with Joel Silver and Joel Silver approved me for that. And so Walter had had some ideas for a, a movie, a Tales from the Crypt movie that's kind of a Frankenstein story about a vigilante a, a vigilante killer who is um, trying to clean up El Paso, Texas. Uh, you know, he, he, he had this sidekick and, and he was going into the darkest depths of the underbelly of the scariest parts of Texas, El Paso, Texas, and taking out bad guys, right? In really violent ways. And in the midst of all of these, um, these, these uh, uh, adventures, he would get, we'd see him get shot and fall off buildings and never die. He would just, you know, if he'd fall off a four-story building, he'd just get up and keep running or he'd get shot, you know, and just keep going. And then it turned out, we learned that he had been a, uh, a criminal in his past and he had died in a crime gone wrong. And instead of allowing him to remain dead, this secret government operation confiscated his body and basically his, his, he became an experimental soldier. He was, he was um, reanimated back to life in this Frankenstein, Frankenstonian lab with a bunch of other um, experimental soldiers and they were being created to be these expendable undead soldiers for to do the government's uh, nefarious bidding. And when he, and they were supposed to be brainwashed into doing what they were told, but he had sparks of memory and it caused him to remember who he was. And, and, and uh, he saw the people who were doing this to him as the real bad guys. And so he broke free of them and the scientists and the government, you know, officials 
that were behind it. And he went on his vigilante mission to, to um, basically uh, make up for all the bad he had done in his past. And, ult- and the ultimate goal was to go back to this lab and set these other soldiers free and kill the people who were behind turning him into a monster. And so as is the case with a lot of Hollywood projects, you know, it was very close to getting made. The script was approved, you know, um, they were in the process of making the second Tales from the Crypt movie at that time, which is Bordello of Blood. Mm. And because Bordello of Blood didn't perform to their satisfaction, Redneck Frank, which Joel Silver had changed the title to Body Count, but I prefer Redneck Frank. Oh, wait, much better um, title. <laughs> um, it got canceled. So sadly, missed it by that much. I, 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 you know, I mean, I get it when something does loses money, everybody gets scared, but I thought it was crazy that he just didn't keep making a bunch of those movies, even straight yeah. to video ones. I agree, uh, I agree. Especially during that time period, too. It would have Especially, it would have fit perfectly during that time period. It would have fit perfectly. Of... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It could have been a, a complete ongoing series of straight-to-video mm-hmm. movies, the Tales from the Crypt brand, you know? Oh, absolutely. So how about Really Big Bugs? So Really Big Bugs um, was a project that I, I had written uh, on spec with the hope of directing myself. And me and the producer, Brad Wyman, we um, put our own money into creating a, uh, a fake trailer for Really Big Bugs. Um, and we had a buddy who was a sort of early um, digital uh, 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 computer-generated effects wizard. And he, um, ha- he was... You know, there was ILM already, of course, and there were some other big companies, but he was one of the first sort of boutique guys who knew how to do it out of his house. And he had all the equipment and he had all the know-how and he created for this trailer some really killer um, CG giant bugs. So we created this trailer and we pitched it around and we one of the places we pitched it was 20th Century Fox. And 20th Century Fox... Uh, bought it. They they bought it. Um, and what was supposed to happen <laughs> was we, we went to a meeting uh, for next steps um, and we were supposed to meet with the executive who was going to be the point person on seeing it through production, right? But the wrong executive walked into the room. <laughs> okay? So, and, and I only will mention him by name because he's very famous now, executive, the, the, the executive who walked into the room, who was not the intended executive for the project, was an executive named Chris Melodandre. <laughs> and Chris Melodandre was overseeing um, kids' movies at Fox. He has since gone on to become a very successful um, powerhouse of uh, animated kids' movies. You know, he does all the... He started Illumination, right? Yeah, he started Illumination. He does all the all the Minion movies and and so many successful movies, and he does it really well. He's very good at what he does. But he was the different, a different, completely different department than the department that was supposed to make really big bugs. Originally, it was going to just be you know like one of their 
lower budget, you know, horror divisions. And instead, um, Chris Meldandre, who was the head of the family division, he, he walked in and it took a completely different path, the movie. And one thing led to another and I no longer was going to be the director and Joe Dante was hired to be the director. And um, I don't remember ultimately what happened, but I did several drafts of the script and um, it didn't end up happening. And I don't remember why, which is the case often, <laughs> yeah. you know, in Hollywood. Um, I got the script back from Fox and Turnaround. The film almost got made another time from an independent company. Didn't happen then. But it, you know, basically the idea was when it was going to be a, a modest budgeted film, our, our strategy was we can make, because we've had experience now making a bunch of really small independent films for a very, um, very small amount of money, but a really big look, right? So our pitch was we can shoot this movie the same way as a small independent movie. We could shoot the movie for a few million bucks below the line, but we'll take the additional, you know, even if we made it for a million or two million below the line, but then instead of spending five million on a star, let's just spend that five million on giant bug effects, right? So it would be a big looking movie, but for a, a really small price. So that was the pitch. And, uh, and it was meant to be kind of a ripoff at the time of, um, Jurassic Park a little bit, but with bugs instead of dinosaurs, <laughs> yeah. you know, but ultimately it didn't happen. Maybe one day it will. I think, I think there's, a, I still think there's room in the world for another giant bug movie. So we'll see. Oh, hell yeah. I agree. <laughs> no, because eight legged freaks. Is that like one of the last ones that came out? That came out, that came out, that a little, that took a little of the wind out of our sails too. Cause that one beat us to it. So <sighs> if, if we had, if we had been able to make it at Fox at the time, we would have beaten everyone else, but that's Hollywood. You know? oh, yeah. It happens. <laughs> but, what can you do? I mean, yeah. I'm not upset about it. It just is what it is, you know? Now, when I saw that title, I was like, man, that sounds... <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. The, the, the idea with, of the script was that it was... I wanted it to be like an Irwin Allen film. It was a disaster movie. You, you establish all these different, you know, stories at the beginning of the movie. And like Earthquake, you know, once the earthquake hits, then you, you interweave all the stories of how this character deals with giant bugs and how that character deals with giant bugs. <laughs> So it's the same thing, you know? Yeah, that, that could still be made today, totally. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Well, a movie that ultimately did get made is Pamela Anderson's Barbed Wire. And we yep. understand that uh, you were involved at some point in time. It's true. I was involved. <laughs> Barbed Wire is, um, and I'll be curious to see if I'm represented in the Pamela... Anderson, Tommy Lee biopic series. Uh, um, because when I was making Barbed Wire, the, the whole scandal with the sex tape hit right at that time. Um, but so what happened was, um, I, Barbed Wire was, was the worst experience of my life that became the best experience of my life. <laughs> so what happened was, I was hired to direct Barbed Wire by Dark Horse Comics. Dark Horse Comics published the comic, owned the character, and they were partnered with a company called Polygram Propaganda. And um, Polygram Propaganda made all those music videos of the day, and they had a whole stable of big music video directors like David Fincher and, and big directors like that. 
So I got caught in the middle of a political um, battle because I got hired by Dark Horse Comics, but unbeknownst to me, Polygram Propaganda wanted one of their directors, one of their in-house directors to have been hired. So um, I got, unfortunately, I shot the movie. I shot and prepped and shot for like a week. Um, and there was a, 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 at the time of the DGA contract, there was a, a clause in the contract that I had to fulfill a certain obligation before I could be fired. And so they couldn't fire me until after a certain point in the shoot. So after one week of shooting, without them having watched anything that I shot, I got replaced with a director who was fully prepped to step in and take over. Um, and this all had happened behind, uh, behind the scenes, which I was totally unaware of. Um, I probably, I knew at the time that I took the job that I probably shouldn't have because I didn't feel passionate about it, but I felt like it was the next step I was supposed to take because at the time it would have been the biggest budget I would have had. It was an opportunity to, you know, comic book movies were just starting to be successful. You know, The Mask was a dark horse movie. Time Cop was a dark, dark horse movie. And this could have been the next one, you know. So I felt like it was, it was the next logical step. But I didn't write it. And I just didn't feel like I should. But then I, I took the job, you know. And then I regretted it because everybody who <laughs> I was calling. I didn't know any of this. Yeah. <laughs> everybody who had called to congratulate me because on the front page of Variety, it said I was hired to direct Barbed Wire, then weren't returning my calls when it said on the front page of Variety that I had left the project due to creative differences. Uh. You know? um, but I thought to myself, okay, that movie's still shooting. Um, and I'm here at home doing nothing. What, what can I, what power do I have to get myself out of this hole? And I looked around at the landscape of Hollywood and I thought, all right, Everybody in Hollywood wants one thing, material, right? They'll, they'll pay whatever they can pay, whatever they can afford to pay for a good script or a treatment. Every executive, every producer, every production company, everybody wants an article they can develop. They, uh, they want a, um, an old movie they can you know, reboot. They, anything that they can do to find that next piece of material that can change the course of their future. I, as a writer, can create material from nothing. So I thought the only way I'm going to get out of this hole is to write my way out. So I just went on a writing binge. And while they were still shooting, I banged out three scripts. Um, the first two scripts didn't sell. And then the third script, before I sold it, I said to Brad Wyman, who was the producer of Barbed Wire and who had produced The Dark Backward and some other films of mine, I said to him, I got this other idea for a movie, but it's just so stupid. I don't think I should write it. I told him the idea. He said, it's so stupid, it'll sell for a million dollars. So um, it was for a movie called Mouse Hunt. And the basic idea was two estranged brothers inherit a big old drafty house that they didn't know their father owned. Um, the house, it turns out, is very valuable because it was designed by a famous architect. What they're, but they don't have money now. But what they're gonna do is they're gonna just put their differences aside, they're gonna move into the house, they're gonna fix it up together, and once it's fixed up, they're gonna sell it for a premium, and they're going to split the money and go their separate ways and never speak to each other again. 
But what they don't realize is, is that living in the house is a very cunning mouse who is not willing to give up his home um, without a fight. And so basically the mouse starts fucking with them and they do everything they can to kill the mouse. And because the mouse outsmarts them at every turn, they end up destroying the whole house. But in the process, it repairs their relationship. Um, and so I wrote it in a week. I kid you not. I just, I just banged it out. And I gave it to my agent who was about to dump me because I had been fired from barbed wire and I had given him two other scripts to sell that didn't sell. And I said, please just try to sell this one. If this one doesn't sell, you can drop me. So he tried to sell it. And at that time, the spec script market was big. Now, for those who don't know what a spec script is, spec script just means you write it on, you write it on your own. You just sit down and write a script and hope that you will sell it. You're writing it on speculation that something good will happen once it's written. So at that time, there was a whole formula to spec script sales. So you would, all these big producers had deals at studios. So on a Tuesday, the script would be slipped to all these different producers that have deals at studios. If they like it on a Wednesday, they then slip it to the studio they have deals with. And if everything goes well, by Thursday or Friday, the script sells. And if there's more than one bidder, the, the bidding war jacks the price up and you sell it for a big amount of money and everybody's a hero. So, and my agent happened to be successful at creating those bidding wars for other clients of his. So he tried that tact. So he sent it to the producers. Some producers didn't want it. Other producers did. Some studios, you know, they slipped it to the studios. So come Wednesday, it goes to some of the, goes to, ultimately gets to the studios. So then Thursday, no, there's no word from any of the studios on Thursday, none. <laughs> and that usually means it's dead if there isn't at least a bite on Thursday, right? In terms of the way this formula went at that time, mm -hmm. you know? So I thought it was dead. So then Friday, then we get a little nibble from, I, I think it was Fox at that time. It was a little nibble. It was like $100,000. And I'm like, what? I'm rich, you know? <laughs> this is fantastic. Sell it. He's like, no, now that we got a, a bite, let's see if we can get someone else to bite. You know, because... And this is the this is just the nature of the business, you know, and it's silly, but it's true. So, you know, somebody doesn't want it unless somebody else wants it, you know. Mm -hmm. So now somebody else wants it. Well, what do they see that I don't see? Suddenly it's there's some there's merit in this material that I I didn't pay close enough attention to. So now he uses that to get another nibble from I think it I think it was Disney. So then it's you know, he the the as the day's going on, it's the price is going up a little bit, 100 grand, 125 grand, 150 grand. I'm thinking this is fantastic, but I'm convinced he's going to blow it. He's going to he's going to be too <laughs> aggressive with these bidders, right? At the time, I was producing a TV show, a kids TV show for ABC called Bone Chillers. Okay, which was like a live action Scooby Doo. These mm -hmm. kids who go to a haunted high school called Edgar Allan Poe High. And every week they have to battle a new monster, right? In the halls. So I'm in a meeting. I figure last I hear it was like up to $200,000, right? Which I'm 
I'm beyond thrilled about, but I'm terrified he's going to somehow piss everybody off at playing <laughs> everybody against each other and blow the deal. So I go into this meeting on Bone Chillers and it lasts like for a couple hours and no cell phones at that time. And if you want to know who called you, you had to call your message machine <laughs> and check your messages, right? So I call and I've got like 30 messages, right? You know, where are you? Where are you? So I called my agent. He said, I hope you don't mind, but uh, I couldn't get a hold of you. And it's Friday late in the day. And I had to make an executive decision and I had to take the initiative and, and pull the trigger on, on a deal. I said, we made a deal. Yes. I, I thought, Oh my God, this is great. I'm going to make a couple hundred thousand dollars. He said, okay. Um, a third bidder came in at the last second. It was DreamWorks. They're in, at the time a new studio and they were looking to get things into, they had, they had sort of been around for a, a couple of years, but they hadn't made anything yet. And they had only just started finally getting busy, getting things going. So they needed material. And the timing was just such that because um, Jeffrey Katzenberg had had an, falling a, out, a, a falling out. Say. Yeah. With Disney on his, you know, he had, he had issues with Disney. So he had a, uh, the, just the timing just happened to be right because he saw mouse hunt as an opportunity, a, to take something away from Disney that Disney was bidding on and B because it was involving a mouse. He, he said he, this could be his mouse, right? Cause everything's of Disney as the mouse house. That's what they call that. the mouse house because of Mickey mouse. So he said, I hope you don't mind, but I took the initiative and I, I closed the deal. I said, what's the deal? He said, a million dollars. What? <laughs> I, my, you saw scanners, right? My head just went. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, man. That's so, so basically, awesome. Basically what it was, was it was $650,000 now. And the balance when the movie got greenlit, which it was, which it was greenlit. I mean, Steven Spielberg. Oh. So, so the deal's for a million dollars and Steven Spielberg wants to meet you on Monday. Like, what? <laughs> so, um, and Steven Spielberg came in the office and said, I've greenlit the movie. I love the script. The movie's greenlit. So dream wow. come true on so many levels. It was, it was, and it changed the course of my whole life. And the editor on Barbed Wire, who I had hired, was still the editor. And, and the, the day that it was announced on the front page of Variety that, I had sold Mouse Hunt to DreamWorks for this large amount of money. The night before, Barbed Wire had had a test screening. Now, I never, um, <laughs> I never root for anybody's failure. Okay, I, I think there's enough opportunities to go around for everybody. I, I root for everybody's success because everybody's success is better for everybody else. But I will take this little victory lap, if I may. <laughs> yeah. Um, he said he was in the room and he looked at the producer of the, the, the polygram producer who had fired me from barbed wire. And in one hand, he had the test scores for barbed wire, which were the lowest in the test score company's history. <laughs> and the front page of variety that said that I had just sold mouse hunt to Steven Spielberg for a large amount of money. And he said, he was just looking back and forth. And he, he, he said to whoever he was with that, they sh maybe they shouldn't have fired Adam Rifkin. So I, 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 that's one little flex I will yeah, take. Take those you know? victories. Right? Yeah, oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, that's... that was that was a that was a great moment.
We are going to hit pause right there and continue this conversation with Adam Rifkin in our next episode. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find us on social media on Twitter at NeverMadeFilm and on Instagram at BestMoviesNeverMade. We also recommend you check out the Electric Now app, which is a free app that allows you access to movies, TV shows, and more importantly, video of our podcast and the other podcasts on our network, like the 430 Movie and Inglorious Trexperts. Thank you to everyone here at Electric Surge, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steve Scarlatta saying, we won't see you at the movies. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.